I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker, and you are leaving a cleaner, tidier U.S. and heading into the Great Concavity for our 2020 Year in Review episode. Hey, nice one, Matt. Welcome to episode 57 of The Great Concavity. This is that fun time of year where we get to look back on all the wonders that the year held for us in books, film, television, music, other pop culture medias. And uh, and we also get to reflect, Matt, on, on what a brilliant year 2020 has been just in general uh, yeah. for the population of, of the world, yeah, for not, humanity. Not great. Not great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, this is like the, the dourest of the five years that our show has, has run, I think. And we can say surprisingly one of the two of us which would be you has <laughs> moved countries during this year yeah i did that was a bit harrowing in fact and um yeah tell us what was that that was like moving from new zealand back to the commonwealth yeah, of canada back to yeah from one commonwealth country to another which which is a pretty seamless transition except that our, all our flights got canceled so we had to rebook them and Air New Zealand was only doing flights to LA from Auckland. So we had to go through LA. We had to overnight at a hotel in LA. And that meant that when we got back to Canada, we had to do the two week quarantine at home thing. Totally locked down, couldn't leave. Uh, you know, family members were dropping off groceries at our front door and like knocking and running kind of a thing. Um, and I've told people that like being in LAX during July at the height of, you know, pandemic was kind of like felt like being in gilead from the handmaid's tale just like looked like armed guards everywhere and like it was just everyone's wearing head coverings and it was something um but yeah we were we were happy to be home we're totally done in new zealand now forever uh maybe we'll go back in 20 years or something if there's an occasion but um that chapter's closed rach is pretty much done her phd now uh she defends next month in january for her dissertation so we're all cheering her on. That's great. Yeah, we've yeah. just mentioned we did fewer episodes this year, and it yeah. was, uh, you know, uh, many different reasons contribute to that. But I yeah. would say one of them, at least for me, maybe you could speak to this as well, was um, just increased workload. And, mm -hmm. you yes. know, the fact that um, you have worked from home a lot in the past, I have mm -hmm. really not. But having my kids home, all fall has been really um, difficult and a lot of work. And mm -hmm. um, also for me personally, I since June or whatever have been the president of our PTA for our elementary school. Right. And so that's sort of turned into like a part-time job of trying to have to figure out how to keep the community together whenever mm -hmm. it's mostly virtual. And there's mm -hmm. still a lot of important tasks to get done. Um, and I will say also a reason I, why I think we've done fewer episodes, Dave, has been that, um, you know, you and I have struggled with diversity and inclusion in this show and have mm. tried to find a good mix of people where, you know, we don't mm. want every episode to just be dudes like us. Yeah. Um, and I think, it's okay if we do have a lot of dudes like us because that's who listens to the show for a lot of 
the people, but a lot of people are not like that. And, you know, the last episode we recorded was, thankfully not, the last episode (laughs) we recorded was with um, Jessica Anthony. That's right, yeah. And that was sort of a highlight. And it's like when you huge dream come true. Right. To talk to her. And it's sort of like whenever you have this big moment, you know, and you achieve a goal and you like walk off stage. um, There was a long coming down period from that, honestly, where I felt like, where do we go from here? Because that was, (laughs) you know, between having her and Jim Gower on last year. And, yeah, and Adam, Adam Levin and Christian Tabordo. Like yeah. we've had so many people that we wanted to talk to. It was totally. Um, we had to let them. We had to give them space to breathe a little bit. I think let those episodes breathe out. Um, well, we had so, to, di- to, to digest. Sorry for the hiatus, you know, y'all. <laughs> yeah, but, totally. but we still do exist, and we still we are not you know walking away from the podcast. We still have a lot of plans and things that we want to do. So I, I do want to thank all the yeah. people who have stuck with us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, especially the people on our Patreon and, you know, we've Absolutely. tried to to send them a few things. And, you know, if you haven't gotten any word from us, like, please just reach out to me and uh, I'll send you some stuff. We have still some magnets and pencils and stickers and we're going to make new stuff. Um, yeah. And in the, in the new year here, we're going to we're going to get on it. So we have a lot of plans and we have a lot to discuss today. This episode, we're probably going to break it into multiple episodes because we have yeah. so much to discuss. It's been so long. And really looking back on 2020, I feel like, you know, there's just so much to cover of not only the media we have consumed, but, you know, what else has occurred and how we've been changed by it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, what else can you do in 2020 except for like read books and watch stuff on TV because you can't leave your house. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't mind that part of it. I am a, a, an extrovert. Like I do like yeah. being out in the world amongst people. Yeah. And I, too. I do miss um, like big house party. Yeah. Um, but Imagine getting to go to a Christmas party right now. Wouldn't that be lovely? With all your friends dude i would be so I just happy dream about that i would be I so happy if that could happen <laughs> um and i've had a bunch of you know christmas parties in the past that i have very fond memories of and new year's eve parties and um i and i will say relevant to this podcast uh conferences right yes and you know that's where you and i met dave was at a david foster mm-hmm. wallace conference and where we have hung out the most times in our life have been at <laughs> David Foster Wallace conferences. Yeah, I think it's only been, what, three times that we've hung out in real life? But who's counting, right? I mean, I'm, well, not, not th- me, obviously. Not three times, I would say three years, because <laughs> each one of those events was multiple times, you know? But Yeah, yeah. Um, but like three, you know, instances of, of weekends or week-long hangouts is uh is all we've gotten in so far we we may have had one earlier this year in austin with the wall society conference but uh 2020 you know blew up in our face and that had to be postponed unfortunately but we're optimistic for next year hopefully that uh there's a conference in the works for amsterdam in late 2021 that allard dundalk is working on heartily so we're hoping that the world is back to normal enough that 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 can be a a meeting place for these folks again and you know i put a lot of work into the 2020 conference that you sure got, did. that got canceled 
And it yeah, was, that was a big low light of this year for you, I think. Absolutely crushing to me to have to yeah. cancel it um, yeah. because we had lined up such great <sighs> events, you know, that I fantasized about. Um, yeah, Jennifer Egan was coming to she, Kino. She was booked, and, you know, we had a great space. And I will say we're already starting the early stages of planning um, the 2022 conference in Austin. And yeah. I'm optimistic that it will be an even bigger shindig and that, you know, I will get be able to get the same sponsors, the Ransom Center mm -hmm. involvement. Um, the UT English department has been very supportive. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends here in Austin who want to be host, right, and to play host. And so I would say keep that on your radar we don't have a save the date yet but it's coming um yeah. in early 2021 we should announce the exact date of the um 2022 conference in austin um we have plans for 2023 2024 is up in the air like we're we're making a lot of plans and that sort of keeps you mm -hmm. going in a bad year totally. i think yeah it does it's true um so today we're going to talk with um not only uh, our own list, Dave, but with some special guests. Do you want to run through what our agenda is for this episode? Yeah, we are, we are going to bring back some of the most uh, beloved, familiar faces of past guests we've had on our show. Uh, we are going to be talking to our good friend Matt Luter about his year in books and as well as ours, and we're, and we're going to roundtable that. Um, then we're going to talk to Chris Ayers, who we had on as our episode five guest, I believe, very early on. And he's recurred several times as well. Uh, you'll know his poor Yorick entertainment work online, all of his movie posters for the JOI filmography, Infinite Jest covers, a uh, very prolific member of this community, uh, especially on the art side. He's going to be talking about his year in television and movies with us. And then we're going to also be bringing on our good friend Grace Chipperfield to be talking about music and games and video games. And so... Uh, this is, yeah, probably going to be a two-parter for just because of the great proliferation of things and number of people that we have to talk about them. But we hope it's going to make for an engaging time. We hope it's going to make up for uh, for kind of the few-month hiatus that we've that we've uh, not intentionally been on. And um, hopefully we'll give you some excellent things to check out over the holiday season here. Um, so stay tuned. We hope you enjoy the episode. Before we dig in here with Matt Luter, we just want to send out some big thank yous to our new patrons. Um, in the last few months, we've had Jack Waters join the team. Great to see Jack. He is a insatiable reader of novels. I was looking at some of his, we're friends on Facebook, and I was looking at some of his year endless, and like this guy is reading like 100 plus books a year. It's just when absolutely he, uh, shaming to me. He was also <laughs> came to the... I think 2012 um, symposium at the Ransom Center. Oh, cool! Um, and I, I, I met him briefly there. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, cool! I've known I him that. quite a while. So yeah, cool. I've never Jack met Jack, there. but he see him around a lot online, and it's been really fun to engage with him. Um, Emily, welcome to the team. Thank you so much. We also have Amanda Hellwell, Jerry Hasty, and Thomas DeSmit. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting us through Patreon. We so appreciate it. It really helps us uh, keep the show going, keep it alive. And we also want to say a special thanks to patron Ben Felonies Diamond, 
who sent a lovely email to us in the past week with a 12-minute voice recording of himself telling us about his favorite things of the year. And I was like thrilled by that, Ben. It was so fun to listen to. And we strongly encourage anyone else who wants to share with us to send in send in a voice recording or an email. Hit us up. You can reach us on concavityshow at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at concavityshow, Instagram at concavityshow, and we're on Facebook as The Great Concavity. As usual, thank you to Robin O'Neill, who is the visual artist for our podcast icon. And actually, Matt, I have been in touch with Robin lately because I won a contest a few years ago that she put out. And the, the answer to the, the contest, like the, the winning answer was today's special, which is a Canadian children's television program. I oh, knew, I'm I familiar. Answer. I know you're familiar. <laughs> and the winner of that would get an original drawing by her. And uh, she's been working on that for three years for me. And she told me, she promised that it would be here by Christmas. So I'm eagerly anticipating it showing up on my door any day. It's very exciting. Very exciting. Going to frame it. It's going to be up on the wall in the Pantheon of Art. Uh, Very psyched. So thanks, Robin, for that in advance. And thanks always to the band Parquet Courts for their song Instant Disassembly, which is our intro-outro music. We hope you guys had a not totally horrendous 2020. Uh, we hope there was some love and light and redemption <laughs> and good literature and things in the midst of it all, if that's possible. Uh, and we hope you enjoy the episode. And we are back. We are here with uh, Great Concavity all-time favorite guest, Matt Luter. Aww. Matt. Welcome again to the show for the third or fourth time, I believe. It's Aww. great to have you. Great great to be here. Always good. And, Always good and, to uh, spend time with y'all. And oh, for yeah. those who are not familiar, Matt is the author of Understanding Jonathan Lethem, as well as the f- co-editor of the forthcoming book, Conversations with Steve Erickson. Um, that should be published summer of 2021 so matt congrats on uh that book anything you want to add to um how that came to be or mention your co-editor i guess we should also mention uh edited this with mike miley uh also uh former concavity guest right and friend of ours Um, former and perpetual he was our last year's 2019 um (laughs) year in review guest he was our last year's guest he was our i read 80 books this year guy (laughs) you know put me to radical shame as you're about to do as we talk about books tonight ah well well but the uh conversations with steve erickson yeah uh coming out um it is uh publication date is summer of 2021 on university of mississippi press part of their literary conversation series that's been around for a long time. Um, Collections of interviews with notable writers. And uh, this is the one collecting um, interviews with Steve Erickson. And I got to ask for, for someone who has not read Steve Erickson, you know, I've read three or four of his books. Um, Where do you recommend that they begin? Do you go back to the beginning? Do you start with his newer stuff? What's your recommendation? I would say start with with uh, with Shadowbond, with the last one. Yeah. Oh, that's um, what I've done. It's a great introduction to his uh-huh. surrealism. It's a great introduction to how he is 
really deeply and passionately interested in uh, in American politics and American history. Mm-hmm. Um, it also gives you a taste for just sort of what a cultural omnivore he is. Um, it mm-hmm. is so full of Shadowbond is, is so full of music. Uh, if you go a yeah, couple novels sure. before that one to Zeroville, that is also a great starting point. If you are more of a, um, more of a more knowledgeable about film than music, cause it's just full of cinematic references. Either of those mm-hmm. are great starts. He's basically like Don DeLillo's little brother in some ways. That's like the vibe that I got when I was reading Shadowbond. I was like, this could be a DeLillo novel, but it's doing some other really cool, weird stuff too that DeLillo doesn't quite Yeah, do. he's, he's, he's a lot weirder. I think he's a lot yes. weirder. He's definitely weirder for sure. Like more, way more surreal. Yeah, sure. Like the Twin Towers just appear in in the middle of what is it like the Nevada desert uh, South Dakota the, the Badlands yeah the Badlands South Dakota so oh yeah right yeah with one person in them yes and who's who's that person it is the um it is the the twin brother of Elvis who uh who in in real in in the world that we are living in together in yes. in reality did not survive infancy but right. in um but in the Erickson novel there he is by himself in the reappeared Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's all like very early on. We didn't just oh, that's spoil like anything. The first five, yeah. five pages. That's just that's just setting the table. It, for it you. goes so that from sounds, there. That sounds bananas to you, which it is. Um, check out Shadowbond. I Absolutely. feel like we discussed it in depth like two years ago we on did, our yeah. episode. We did. Yeah. Um, so that's all we're gonna say about that. <laughs> I I will tell you one brief thing about Steve Erickson, which is that I discovered him in high school this is probably like 1994 i discovered him through the bargain bin at at a bookstore slash fabric store they sold fabric mostly (laughs) but they had a small bin of like bargain one (laughs) dollar books and i picked up this book called arc to x because i thought it was like mild pornography <laughs> and the cover of it was very like you were like a teenager at the sexy time. it was a sexy cover and then i got it home and i was like wow this is like thomas jefferson and i was like there's nothing sexual about this book i mean not that there's nothing sexual about it but it's like it is not what a teenager would want to read but I kept it. I still have that copy that I bought at a fabric store. Maybe even, I don't know when that book came out, but like 93, maybe 94. The pages are just all shredded in frustration as you <laughs> got further and further, realizing would, that there wasn't going to be any sex. I would say they were unread for many years. <laughs> um, it's like that skit from, uh, I think you should leave with Tim Robinson, where honk if you're horny bumper sticker, and the guy's just honking his horn, just following around for days, honking. That's you. Steve Erickson. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. That was not me. I was the guy at the fabric store, Dave. Uh, <laughs> Making your own bookmarks with all the fabric that they had. Anyways, the reason cool. why we invited Matt Luter on here is to talk about actual books from the year that he's read in the year 2020. Mm-hmm, and, weird. you know, we have not yet said what our top books of the year were. And I think when we were discussing this before we were recording, there is some overlap in the books that we all three of us read. And so Mm -hmm. there's some opportunity there, I think, to 
have a little bit of group discussion about a couple of books. Um, but really, let's start with Matt's list because Matt read uh, a phenomenal number of books this year. Um, Matt, you had the privilege to have some time to stay home this year to, well, well, did, <laughs> to yeah, read well, some books. Didn't, didn't we all, right? So, um, yeah. A lot of time on our hands and, uh, you know, getting books delivered. Do you want to put in a plug for... Uh, your favorite place to get books delivered from? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> curbside may, pickup may as may yeah. as well, right? Uh, I mean, in it is good to uh, support our local uh, independent bookstores. I, I live in Jackson, Mississippi, which means I uh, certainly, um, whenever possible, make use of of Lemuria in Banner Hall. Yeah, lovely place. That um, is a cool name. And I, I, as I look at the list of what all I read this year, the the stuff that is new, the stuff that is from 2020. Yeah. Came from there pretty much. That's right. And can you think back to the, to the beginning of the year or last year, whenever, what books were you looking forward to that you had heard about that were coming in 2020 that you did read or was there anything like that? Um, I think we had, had we did we hear rumors in late 2019 or was it early 2020 that we had a new Delillo coming? Um, I think it was early 2020. I think so too. Okay. It, was, right. yeah. it was after the pandemic began really that it was announced. Okay. Right. It's like, wow, here's this another prescient book from Don Delillo who's predicting the future again. Yeah. Cool. And the same with John, <laughs> Jonathan Lethem was probably announced, you know, at the beginning of the year. And, and there is some, yeah, both of those have some resonances. Mm-hmm. With, and, with, I, you know, I was feeling like we're lucky to be alive whenever Don DeLillo is still publishing books, right? Sure. Because part of me feels like Thomas Pynchon is done, right? Like You think so? You don't think there's one more coming? If so, it's probably not a major work. Like, I, I honestly believe, like, he's a very old man. He's like yeah. 80 three 84 years old and uh maybe he's 82 i don't know but he's he's an older person and same age as delillo maybe delillo is 82 i think Um, around there yeah and this is a minor work like let's be honest the silence is not oh sure yeah it's a one one hour one and a half hour read you're done yeah two hours maybe i mean yeah very few people pages with a generous type kerning kerning's big yeah totally um, <laughs> and I've got my I've got my hot take on it. Um, yeah, lay it on us. Which I which just read I, it like last week. Sure, too, I've right? I've got my hot take on it, which is that um, as a novel, it is it is far from his best, and and it does say uh, you know it it says right there on the title page, "The Silence, a novel." This is how he wants us to understand it. Um, but, you know, he has also written a handful of really idiosyncratic plays. And I found myself reading this like it was a play. And if I read it that way, it's his best play. Um, it, it is largely set in one location. It has a very small number of characters. It is primarily dialogue. And um, it does not all by any means like come to a clear or or tidy resolution Mm -hmm. and so um 
I sort of felt after reading it that I had read a play more than I had read a novel for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, if it uh, like I'm I'm with y'all that it it's sort of it, it's it doesn't read as a super super major work, but at the same time, like if I get another dispatch from Don DeLillo's <laughs> brain every couple of years, like yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to be mad about that. If it's not, you know, what if it's not another underworld. underworld, if it's not another yeah. Mal too, like, yeah. um, and you know, I, I loved point Omega a few years back. So like, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility in my mind that he could still, um, have something back right in him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I hope so. He still seems whip smart based on this one, you know, like um, there's no red flags for me in terms of the diminishment of his capabilities at all. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's fine. I I was rereading some of it this weekend and, and preparing for this episode. And one thing I started to think about was like, trying to get a handle on what was going through his mind when he wanted to write about this, because it's pitched very much as a pandemic thing of like, what happens to like all of humanity when, you know, this thing happens, but the experience of reading the book, I actually didn't feel the pandemic as much as I was thinking more actually like reviewers were talking about. Sure. Yeah. The publisher as well. But I, I was actually had this thought, today or yesterday that uh maybe possibly some of it is just a response to some of the same themes that wallace was writing about in infinite chest which is Mm -hmm. someone sitting in front of a tv Mm -hmm. and someone being addicted to a thing that Mm -hmm. you know if it's taken away from them that's a sort of therapy and that maybe this is like a therapeutic approach or almost like a therapeutic novel that says this is one person's experience. You know, there's like uh, another thing I've been reading about where you have a big problem, like the pandemic. You can talk about numbers like, oh my God, 16 million cases, 300,000 people dead. And that doesn't make it real for someone unless they have an identifiable victim, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's better to tell the story of the pandemic with like one person. That's the Anthony Burgess quote, right? Like we are all solipsists. Uh, when we die, the world dies with us. Only very minor literature aims at apocalypse, which Wallace, you know, epigraphed one of his stories with. Um, that's the, that's the idea, right? If you tell the, the story of the apocalypse, no one cares. That's not interesting. But I want to get Even Matt's take on this, like person's... like the TV in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. It can kill you or <sighs> it could be like this total like absence, you know, like an addictive thing. Like, what do you think he was doing there with the TV? I the the image that stays with me is the moment. Um, I may, we perhaps should clarify like a little bit uh, for folks who for folks <laughs> who maybe haven't read it. Yeah, yeah. That um, well, the the first scene is uh, is on an airplane, and yeah. something something happens. There is an event. Some and kind of malfunction right um and it and uh the plane and it's it harkens back a little bit to white noise right the difference between mm-hmm. a crash and a crash landing in white noise so the plane crash lands and uh the the main characters who are on the plane are going to a friend's apartment to watch the super bowl mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And um, they find that, like, at the same time that all the electronics on the plane went down, uh, the, the, the television uh, goes out, like all of these <laughs> other electronics go out, uh, including yeah. cell phones, everything. But he, he like a play- big EMP device goes off or something. Yeah, he plays around with that image at one point of like one of the characters just still trying to describe the game, even with the blank mm-hmm. screen. So I mean, right. yeah, he's like Jim Trollshing, like commenting. Yes, what might have been happening. <laughs> and I mean, it it's it is. Uh, not to be super cute and refer back to the title, but it's it's about it's about silence and it's about our discomfort with silence on a certain level, right? Because the um, th- there is that pretty great New York Times interview that uh, that Delillo did um, around the time the book came out, where he he said one of the things that made him uh, one of, one of the the starting points for him writing about this was being on a plane and seeing the screen and the seat back in front of him that had all the data about the flight, mm-hmm. and you know that had the little map and the altitude and the ETA and all of that, and it just kind of struck him as as strange, which it is because why do we need that information? Um, I don't know, but I love it. I love sure. it personally. Like, and and I wonder, if, but I wonder if that's the same kind of like. There's discomfort with silence on a plane. Like, there's discomfort mm-hmm. with not having knowledge that we think we ought to have access to. There's discomfort in um, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of something that could be keeping us company, or at least making noise, kind of being taken away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find this in my own life. And, you know, there are multiple writers besides Wallace or DeLillo who have written about it. Um, but because we do have noise in our lives so much and like, you know, with the invention of like Spotify, where you can have music on pretty much whenever you want. You know, I think when I was growing up, I had a Walkman. Right. And I had like three <laughs> MC tapes. Hammer tapes. I, I remember talk it, tapes. It, absolutely. And, <laughs> My first CD ever was Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation. Mm. And, you know, I had that one CD and I had U2, um, The Joshua Tree. And like I listened to those two CDs over and over and I would listen to the radio. And it's like the fact that we have engineered the opposite of silence, right? Where there's always this sort of background soundtrack to your lives whenever you turn it off, especially with screens and kids now with screens. You know, I wonder, I guess this is what I'm getting at is like DeLillo is what he's seeing. Is it prescient with our kids and like the need for not just sound, but the visual part, you know, and I think Wallace was very addicted to that, especially with seeing people's faces. I remember, I think it's in Big Red Sun where he writes about pornography and a woman's face being this very addictive thing. And a man says, he interviews this guy at the convention who's like, it's the, the faces. There's so much going on there that you can't look away from it. And I think even in football, right, they're looking for some uh, really up close information that is addictive. And that's this ritualized thing. Um, you know, one question I had about the silence also, which I want to get both of you guys take on probably one of my favorite parts is the stuff that uh, one of the characters talks a lot about Einstein's theories. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy's kind of like the Murray Susskind character from White Noise. He reminds this me is of like me. signature Delillo move, right? Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> let's have an, an Einstein guy. Um, but I absolutely loved it. it. Made the book for me of having totally. that that conversation in there. Kind of, yeah. I don't know, polymath. Like, what is this guy? Physicist himself? I forget. Mm-hmm. But. High school teacher, physicist. I think. I mean, what was going on there, Matt? Do you think what? What? Why bring in? Einstein, where we're talking about, I don't know, the lack of transmission of visuals or something like that. <laughs> I speed of light. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> the speed of light of electronics. I, I do not have a good answer by any means uh, right away. I wonder, um, I wonder if it has something to do with modernity, like the idea of the 20th, the there's that sort of there's that comment from Virginia Woolf about how uh, in uh, I'm going to butcher it if I try to quote it exactly. But, you know, in December 1920, human nature changed and like people. Pe- pe- there's some debate, right, as to whether that is a joke or whether she's dead serious. Hmm. And so um, at least I have heard people make both assertions that that's totally to be taken as something kind of tongue in cheek and that it's not. Um, I wonder if there's something like that going on. I wonder if he is trying to diagnose that kind of discomfort with silence as something that is very relatively recent in human history. Um, That's a great line. Uh, Let's, let's table that for the moment because (laughs) I know we have a lot more to talk about on your list. And like, I know that, you know, DeLillo is one of your favorite writers, Latham, new book. Like, why don't you give us like your, your top five, top 10, like what else Mm -hmm. is on your list? Sure. Uh, we we can certainly talk about the, the Jonathan Latham. I, um, it is called the arrest. It is, uh, it also has some kind of resonances with where we are 2020 right now. Um, Mm -hmm. basic premise of it is kind of like the, the DeLillo, there has been an event uh, that is referred to as the arrest since the title. And, um, it has rendered electronics, gasoline, and firearms all useless. And so people, people, yeah, people have kind of, um, sort of hunkered down wherever, wherever they were when, uh, the, the event happened. And the main character just happens to be with his sister in new England at a sort of like, commune is not exactly the right word, but like a place centered on organic farming and, uh, and, and, and things. Lucky windfall for that guy. Sure. And a a place that is largely self-sustaining as a result. Um, and, uh, early in the novel, um, his former, uh, screenwriting partner and roommate from his days on the West coast, appears in new england with an armored supercar that he that he <laughs> claims he has driven across the uh the nation in order to see him and uh and so on one level it's like a great i mean it's the stranger comes to town it's one of the oldest Is it a buddy pick do they go on a road trip um there there are some car? there are some flashbacks that involve some okay. some i mean i mean Lethem loves his like dynamic duos of male best friends like that is a very lethal thing. And so there is a little bit of that, but, um, that relationship is strained in this. Um, and, and 
it is it is my favorite Lethem since Dissident Gardens, probably. Um, I was not crazy about a Gambler's Anatomy. I I liked the Feral Detective. I like uh, I liked it pretty well. But this is um, this is the first one in a while where he is being as weird as he can be. You know, uh, this is the like Chronic City weird. Yeah, like children's children's weird. This is this is Chronic City. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is Chronic City level weird. So it would yeah, it's up your alley then, Dave. Um, and it's uh, it. it, it it was a it was a strange read for me because it felt very like 2020. It like Delillo is about this sense of, or, or is redolent of this sense of pause that we are all sort of in mm. on some level, not by choice. And Lethem seems to be finding a little more good in it. It's not as mm. It still has some paranoia to it, but it's not as apocalyptic as as the mm-hmm. Delillo. Um, and so it was a strange read to sort of see something that is about like being stuck in place, but uh, also, you know, um, I mean, it's it's a novel with conflict and with heartache in it, but also watching some characters sort of find ways to 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 operate in the world in the midst of that. That well, sounds nice. Anytime we mention um, Lethem on this show, I feel like it does have a resonance because, you know, he has Wallace's old job. Yeah. Right? And he uh, is very open about that. I think that I mentioned that I have been on a panel with him one time and been able to ask him about this. And he was very open about, especially whenever that transition was happening and the, the, chair at Pomona was vacant for a bit and then he was hired you know there were still kids that he was teaching who were brought in to study with Wallace that ended up graduating with Lethem so he is very cognizant that he um, is not the first person to have that job Um, and it's pretty cool like position to be in in Southern California also of probably very near where Steve Erickson lives honestly Hmm. Um, so there's some like, I don't know, psychic overlap going on there from like Wallace to Lethem to Steve Erickson, who was there before. And that, you know, when Wallace moved there, Erickson, I know, reached out to him and said, Hey, we're starting this new journal called black clock. Mm -hmm. Uh, will you send us something? And Wallace said, yes. Um, so I, you know, I'm the type of dude as you both know who probably could relate literally any conversation to david foster wallace so that's a very that's an easy one there um matt what else is on your list you read like 290 something books like which one is your favorite this this year what's some other favorites it's it's more like 50 something to be to be to be uh, clear, which is is not that's one a week, man. It that's is. One a um, week, I mean, that's a lot I more can than I, read. I can really <laughs> test your uh, your can we connect everything to Wallace by bringing up the fact that probably my favorite new book of 2020 is the new translation of Beowulf by Maria Devana Headley. Um, it is all right. Okay, we gonna we gonna do this? Is um, there a Beowulf Wallace connection? 
keep, keep talking. Keep okay. talking. I'm, I, <laughs> so have, have either of y'all read this? No, I've only, I, I've not I've only read heard it. of it from you. Okay. A couple other, you know, things online or whatever. It is, it is just wonderful. Um, I, <laughs> I like many of us was assigned Beowulf in high school and did not like it. Um, uh, and then in college I was assigned the, the Seamus Heaney translation mm. and was like, okay, Oh, this, I like, there is something here. And then, um, and I've taught that translation a couple of times and I, I, I really do like it. And this one is, uh, is just fascinating. Um, the translator, uh, Headley is really interested in thinking about this, this poem in terms of gender. Um, she is very clear and I've read a couple interviews and such where she is very clear about this is a, um, a poem about a bunch of macho dudes retelling their, their, their glory days, retelling their war stories. And the counterpoint to that in her view is that Grendel's mother is not a, an unholy monster so much as she is, um, someone who is grieving the, uh, the murder of her son. Loss of her. And, um, so there is some just fascinating stuff going on with the way she's uh, thinking about masculinity in it. Um, probably if, you, if you've heard anything about this translation, it's that she translates the first word of the Old English, which many translations through the years have, have done as hark or as listen, um, and which Seamus Heaney does as so. You know this this invitation to come listen to a story. She translates it as "bro, bro," <laughs> and um, and and it is full of a lot of these. Um, she uses some archaic language. She uses some very contemporary language and mixes it all up. There is a lot of bro. There's a fair amount of dude. There is some really good. Um, there's some really good creative profanity. There is one hashtag blessed. Uh, at one point, a character stands Beowulf. Um, oh, Stan. It's okay. and and but but none of it reads as like. As it, none of it reads as like I'm trying to be the cool translator. Like it's not a gimmick. It's, right? not, it's, not, it's a gimmick. not a gimmick. And um, and and it, it, it she does use some of the um, alliteration. She keeps some alliteration intact. Um, so it, it it feels very in the spirit of you know this is. The, an old English epic, but feels very present and relevant at the mm. same time. And, and I just loved it. Um, Would you care to offer us a reading? I, well, yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all suggested I should, I should choose uh, a passage here and I'm going to, I'm going to go straight to the end. I'm just going to read the last like 15 lines or so, which um, this, we're going to, we're going to spoil the ending here of this of this yes, thou- 1200 year yes old. we're gonna spoil the ending <laughs> of this thousand year old poem and um this is after uh this is after beowulf's death and and funeral and i have to tell you like he dies in the end he does he does um, <laughs> but i have to tell you this this ending 
I I find like the first time I read it, I I found it moving in a way that I did not expect. It it snuck up on me. So this is the last 15 lines or so. Twelve thanes, battle-tested sons of worthy men, took themselves to horseback and coursed around the tomb, weeping, ringing the old songs from their tongues, dirge chanting, telling the legend of Beowulf, their king, his courage, his fury, his wars. They did all this grieving the way men do. But, bro, no man knows, not me, not you, how to get to goodbye. His guys tried. They remembered the right words. Our king, lonely ring-wielder, inheritor of everything. He was our man, but every man dies. Here he is now. Here our best boy lies. He rode hard. He stayed thirsty. He was the man. He was the man. <laughs> That's, That's pretty great, tight. Man. It's pretty great. I, I like that. Yeah. And you know, as I was mentioning earlier, I spent a lot of time of my life studying this poem going back into undergrad. You know, I did not have a graduate degree, but I did get special dispensation to go into one of my mentors. His name was Raymond Tripp. He was a Beowulf scholar and he assigned us as many Beowulf scholars do sweets, sweets, Anglo-Saxon primer. And you, that is the translator's guide to old english and anglo-saxon literature and language but i'm going to bring it back to david foster wallace here by saying that (laughs) i was also at the time trying to translate some poems into spanish and the preeminent translation of beowulf into spanish um, is by the great author jorge luis borges and there is a long discussion of his obsession with Beowulf in the biography of Borges called Borges, A Life by Edwin Williamson, which David Foster Wallace reviewed that book in The New York Times. There it Borges, is. Borges, A Life. Um, so you bring two of my favorite things together there, which is Beowulf, <laughs> Borges, David Foster Wallace. I mean, I guess I brought them together, but... Uh, I would say also in my brief tenure as a uh, textbook editor for the high school level, I did a lot of uh, what we call adapted readers and adaptations. And one of the Borges, uh, no, I'm sorry, one of the Beowulf adaptations is the graphic novel version by Gareth Hines. And that uh, we got permission from Gareth Hines to include that in a literature anthology published by Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston. And if you haven't seen Gareth Hines' art for Beowulf, I think he really does bring it alive. Um, and I hope, like, for a new generation, this book brings it alive. Will you tell us the translator's name one more time? Sure. Maria Devana Headley. Uh, she is a novelist. I I have to admit, I, I have not read uh, any of her novels, so I'm super intrigued to now. And yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, she's on Twitter too, and she's super active on Twitter. Okay. And uh, I saw her publish, uh, posting some stuff just today, this weekend. Um, I definitely want to pick that up. Uh, Matt, what else did you enjoy this year? Um, let's see. A uh, few things. Um, I, I know I know. Dave wants to talk some about uh, Ducks Newberry Fort. Um a few, like I'll hit a few high points really quick. 
uh, also on my list. Um, uh, Claudia Rankin's Just Us, uh, her new one that came out this year. Um, if you uh, if you have read Citizen, um, poet and essayist uh, Claudia Rankin, Citizen, really really wonderful book um, from a few years back. Um, fascinating mix of poems, some more essayistic things, and then also doing a lot of interesting stuff with images and sort of uh, the layout of that book is fascinating. Um, and it is about, uh, it is some really honest, challenging thinking about, about, uh, race in America in terms, in historical terms and in present, Mm -hmm. um, citizen focuses largely on experiences of black Americans and in just us, she is still writing as an African-American woman thinking about uh, race, but she is thinking way more about whiteness as a label and as a category. Mm-hmm. And it's um, another book that's also doing really fascinating stuff with image and, and layout and the book as object. Um, so, like, I just I it's it's a fascinating project altogether it it feels like it needs a word that's bigger than book um (laughs) to get at all that what's going on in it i'm a big fan of the citizen citizen so i I haven't read um just us but i'm extremely inclined to and you know i i haven't brought this up yet but i did read like probably a lot of americans i did read a lot of anti-racism books in 2020 and especially after the death of george floyd here in the u.s mm-hmm. there was the largest you know demonstrations we've ever seen since 1960s since ever um here in the u.s and there were a lot of people who were unwilling to talk about race issues before who suddenly felt the need to and i think you know claudia rankin has been plugged into that for a very long time um lyric poetry that book um honestly there's parts of citizen that are some of it feel a little like a little bit dated to me so like i would be curious to see like how whatever's on her mind right now you know like that's the danger of writing a lot about it like very up to the moment cultural references as like get stated worse shit happens. Yeah. Well, just worse shit yeah. happens. And, um, you know, you got to update it. So I'm curious to read that. I, I think like a lot of people I read Ibram X. Kendi. I don't know if you guys have ever read how to be an anti-racist or stamped from the beginning. Um, but those books just sold absolute gangbusters right. this year. And, you know, one thing I was going to say at the top of this is like, um, I told Dave this, like, no one needs a recommendation from us to like, go, you know, read Stephen King, right? Like, oh, I read a Stephen King book this year. I'm not going to talk about it, right? Like, you can go and if you, you know, I watched the Queen's Gambit. You don't need to hear a recommendation <laughs> for that from me, right? Like, you can go open Netflix.com. It will recommend you go watch the Queen's Gambit. It's good. Yeah. But like... <laughs> Just Us is something that, like, a lot of people read Ibram X. Kendi. Maybe they didn't read Claudia Rankine. 
and Matt, I know that you haven't said this because you're super humble, but like you teach this kind of stuff too, right? Like you've taught a lot of African-American literature yeah. classes, yes, literature in general. Like mm-hmm. how does this inform like a lot of the traditions that you teach your students about? Sure. Um, I am actually teaching Citizen, uh, started it with a couple of classes last week and I'm going to finish it this week. Um, one thing that, uh, to speak to sort of how present tense that book is, um, uh, citizen is from 2016, I believe. And, um, and I'm teaching it to high school seniors who are sharp readers and who are aware of things going on in the world for sure. But, um, there are things she has described. There's, there's a segment about Hurricane Katrina, and it, I have to stop and remind myself. Um, I teach students now who were three years old when that happened. Um, I have to uh, – there's, there's much that she is doing in Citizen that comes out of uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin, and my students were 12 when that happened. So um, there are things that feel very – like they were yesterday, that I, I do find myself having to sometimes kind of pause and say, how much do we know about uh, this event that is being described here? And how much do we need to clarify? Um, Citizen famously has that uh, wonderful essay about Serena Williams in it. And so they, my students all know who Serena Williams is. Um, but uh, thinking about a, an athlete in terms that are a little more political than merely uh, thinking about her as an impressive athlete, that kind of thinking can be, can be new to them. And so that's sort of uh, – that, that's a lot of – what I feel with a book like that I'm winding up introducing students to is at times it is just, we need to clarify some of the the history, Hmm. but a lot of times it is, um, now that we know some of the, now that we're on the same page as some of, with regard to some of the facts of this history, uh, let's think about, um, multiple ways that these stories can be told or multiple ways that they can be understood and why they can be contested. And what's at stake when they're contested? You know, I didn't really plan on bringing this up per se, but like I say, I I wouldn't group this into a lot of the other books that I've read because I've read them. I mostly read for pleasure, right? Like I'm not a teacher. I'm not in a PhD program. I don't really have to read anything. I don't get in trouble if I don't read, <laughs> you know, um, but I do read some books to review. I do read some books because I love them. I follow a lot of writers. But this year was one of the few times where I felt like I needed to read some books as a citizen. And I needed, there were a lot of um, things that I had sort of read the footnotes of, of American history. And I was like, you know what? No, I need to go back and reread as a human being. And like I say, my, my job, my role as a PTA president has been more of like a community organizer and I've taken that very seriously because I believe that like whatever little bit of influence you have, you should use it for good. And, 
you know, the, the community that I live in is very diverse. I'm very proud of that. Our school is like 53% Hispanic and like 18% black, 18% white, and a lot of mixed race kids, um, kids of multiple races and Asian kids. And um, our school, I think I've mentioned to you and to all the people at our last society meeting is that I'm big on this book called Courageous Conversations About Race by Glenn Singleton. Mm -hmm. And a lot of white people just don't know how to talk about race with other people. And, you know, you can read all the poetry and novels in the world and not really understand how to politically engage with your community, especially with your neighbors. And like I say, I've got Puerto Rican, Hispanic, black, um, indigenous people on my street who I know and I'm friends with. And yet it's still a little bit awkward to talk with them about race. So I'm a big proponent of this book called Courageous Conversations. It sort of sets out um, some protocols about how to have these conversations. I would say outside the classroom or outside of the formal, you know, education environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's sort of like, if you just care about this, how do you have a conversation with, um, you know, even other white people? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people like, uh, you know, people ask me like, well, shouldn't shouldn't the diversity committee should be all black people, right? Or all Hispanic people. And it's like, you know what? Black, no, black people did not invent white supremacy and they should not be responsible for just being the only ones to tear it down. Right. Um, so I, I think white people have a lot of responsibility in the U.S. right now. And, you know, like I say, we had a big moment this year and we can't let that pass by. We can't let other political shit overshadow that. Mm-hmm. So let me mention uh, two more books, actually, that, that would be relevant to this. Um, one I did not put on the my, my list of all that I read this year that uh-huh. I, I shared with you all because I have been sort of dipping into it kind of piecemeal. And that is, I know, Matt, you are like me, a, uh, a big Library of America fan. And yes, they, let's talk about that. They put out this year a fantastic um, anthology of African-American poetry. It's Kevin Young. Kevin, Kevin Young, Young is the editor. Right. And um, it is it goes all the way back to the 18th century. And the most recent stuff in it is from the last four or five years. And um I know when I got my copy and I poked around the table of contents, I just reacted like, I'm so happy to see all of this wonderful stuff that I recognize by writers, by poets I love, you know, here's all of this great Gwendolyn Brooks and Mm -hmm. and so on. And then it was fun to see um, names I recognize, but work I did not. For instance, uh, Richard Wright was really interested in haiku. And it has a selection of Richard Wright's haiku. And then um, and then also poking around and just seeing I, this is not a name that's familiar to me at all. And so it has been a great book to, to explore and to see sort of, um, it, it's, it's uh, organized chronologically so you can see sort of who is mm. thinking about the same issues at the same time. Just wonderful, wonderful stuff in it. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be 
reading it piecemeal probably like for for months to come and just finding finding things to like in it uh one other 2020 book that i would that is worth mentioning that is on up there for me as well um another poet uh natasha treadaway uh there's a memoir of hers called memorial drive that is out this year that is another one of my favorites of the year um former u.s poet laureate um, she, like myself, is also from Mississippi, so I'm, I'm always interested in her thinking about the Deep South and uh, history there that has to do with race, but also has to do with um, sort of history and memory in general. Um, so going to throw it out there as well. Uh, and, it, and it does touch on as well, some of the uh, some of the things that that Matt was thinking about that have also been sort of um, in cultural discourse big time this year. Hmm. Um, I, I really like a lot of her poems. I want to pick that that book up for sure because uh, I think she probably had a really interesting life. And I love whenever poets write memoirs. Like I um, I could name several that I've really enjoyed, but. Going back to the the courageous conversations thing, sure. I wanted to pull it up, uh, the actual book, and say there's, um, you know, in the protocols that Glenn Singleton talks about, I've tried to apply them not only to PTA to the Dave Foster Wallace Society um, meetings, the stuff we've had about equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, and in those conversations, which are you know with people of color, with Black Indigenous people of color mostly. Um, there are four sort of pillars that he lays out for those conversations. And I'm going to just say them because I think they could have value to someone who's interested in this book to go pick it up. This is like a $35 book. It's like a teacher's edition mm-hmm. of a book. Um, so the four things are one, um, speak your truth. So like a lot of people are afraid to say like, Oh, I didn't know that this was bad to say this word, or I didn't know it was bad. Like one, Speak your truth. Say your thing. I never experienced racism. That's okay. Say it. Or if you say whatever is true to you, you need to be comfortable saying that. Number two, experience discomfort. So someone might call you out and say, you know what? That actually is racist or that actually makes me uncomfortable or I actually think you need to go back and think about that. A lot of people, when they experience discomfort, they check out. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear this. I'm done. Fuck you. I'm done. It's a personal attack. Um, it feels like. Well, and it's not. Like, right? right. And that's the third thing is stay engaged. And this is really hard a lot of times because, like I said, other things happen politically, emotionally, the pandemic's going on. It's like, can you stay engaged in this work? Do you want to stay engaged in, you know, achieving racial equity because we could do this conversation for 400 years mm-hmm. reparations and the balance of it the ledger would not be equal mm-hmm. right and the fourth one which should appeal to fans of david foster wallace is expect non-closure mm-hmm. if you expect things not to have a neat and tidy ending like welp we elected Obama. We solved racism. It's like, nope, there, there is no, you know, you need to expect that there is no closure to this. Mm-hmm. And for the, the American problem, the American project that we 
are all, everyone in the world. Dave could probably speak to this living in, how many countries have you lived in, Dave? Uh, a lot. Depend, it depends on how <laughs> three, you define four, five, in. six. Like, you say six months, then I guess three? Like Israel. No, less. You've New lived Zealand, in more. Canada. I lived in for four months you, in Australia in 2006. That counts. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, what we do in America, the leadership that oh yeah, you know, happens in America, it affects all of those countries, and mm-hmm. um, entirely. It, it is really uh, bad whenever there is some kind of expectation that there will just be closure to things and we will move on. And that's been the root of a lot of our problems. So, you know, we can read literature about this stuff, but like a lot of what I've been doing just in the past year is not reading literature about it, but like trying to meet the people and listen to people Mm -hmm. in my community about where they're at. And like get get praxis happening, right? Like here's our theory and here's where the rubber meets the road on how we actually do things in our school, for example, around yeah. these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. How do absolutely. we improve access and for low-income families and struggling families? And and both of you guys being teachers, yeah. a lot of teachers, uh, you know, they often think what they do, you know, they don't have much control over or they think that it doesn't matter what teachers do the decisions you guys make that is where the rubber hits the road those implications of the Mm -hmm. the school to prison pipeline all of those things when you give a kid a grade you're making a political statement like believe it or not whenever you say this kid is a problem and refer them on to disciplinary problem like that is a political statement Mm -hmm. and uh, I just think the U.S. has reached a boiling point with that in the past year. Um, Certainly. And it's really hard. Like, so you bring up a book like Claudia Rankine and like I immediately, my first thought is like, I want to invite her to our school, right? Like I want to get her, <laughs> she'd probably do like a Zoom project with us, right? And like the same with Jason Reynolds. I don't know if we talked about Jason Reynolds, but like he's had a huge impact on like yeah. K-12 reading yeah. in general. And, you know, the book that he co-wrote with Brendan Kiley um, called All American Boys, um, Brendan Kiley was a friend of mine in New York. And, like, he was best friends with one of my colleagues that I worked with at my job and used to hang out at parties all the time and talk about our publishing jobs. And now Brendan is writing his book with Jason Reynolds about, you know, what it means to be white, what it means to be black, Um I'm going to be quiet now because I still <laughs> want to hear what Matt's list is. But like you can tell like this shit matters. Like yeah. when you bring up oh. like Claudia Rankine stuff, print, you know, teaching that stuff. Yeah. It's super important, Matt. Good job. I, 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 yeah, I do my, buddy. I do my, I do my best and I do it imperfectly. I know, but I do, <laughs> but I do my best. Um, but you're doing it. I mean, you're doing it. Um, I let's see, Dave. You want you want to talk? You want to talk ducks, Newbury Port a lot. That I do. Let's do that. Sure. Because you 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 read <laughs> this that. This is my this is my quarantine novel. Yeah. In New Zealand, this was like my March uh, April read. Sorry, I think it took me about two months to finish it. Because yeah, it's a ch- it's a chunker for sure. <laughs> um, but it 
it really I found that the experience of reading it like altered my psyche yes. in a way that very few books have where I just started thinking in terms of this form the fact that right we gotta yada 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 and we gotta so, yeah, explain a little bit. That a bit yeah so <laughs> i i read this november december of of last year and it, it also took mm-hmm. me like yeah it's it takes it is a weeks long investment um novel by lucy ellman um eight weeks for me yeah something <laughs> something like that for me for sure um and <laughs> it is there was press that said it, the entire novel was a single sentence, which is is not true, but not entirely, the no. the primary the action I would say yeah, yeah. the the primary element of the text is a single sentence that is interrupted. which is ninety five percent of the book yes at least it is it is it. interrupted by a subplot that is told in much more traditional uh, sentence yeah. and paragraph form, but it is about a uh, a woman in the Midwest who is a mother is divorced from an ex-husband she does not much care for remarried to a husband that she seems to adore right dave entirely um and uh she bakes he's a structural engineer yeah it's like a bridge he's into bridges he teaches about bridges and she (laughs) bakes to bring in some more money to the household and it's largely about it is would it I, I get I get annoyed with misuse of the term stream of consciousness. Are we calling this stream of consciousness? Yeah. I, I think we well, can. I'm curious to hear your you unpack that a bit. I would I would typically describe it in something approaching those terms, but um... I I I, th- I think it's stream of consciousness. I, I think it I think it is too. <laughs> What's your issue with that term, Matt? Of I've I've heard it misused to refer to just like any fiction that is not chronological or is not linear, right? Okay. You know, um, uh, and and that's more or less linear, I would say, if that's the defining characteristic. Well, yeah, it largely moves from, you know, from in yeah. in chronological order with flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so just like your own mind does, it, and and your well, own mind you know. like takes weird flights of fancy, where mm-hmm. where where one thought makes you think of something that happened twenty years ago, which brings you back mm-hmm. to the present, and then there's like a sensory trigger that immediately makes you think of, you know, something else, and then you stop for like three or four pages and think about a movie. Which is like Bridges of Madison. Yes, there there are a few may or may not happen in this. book. There are a few pages in this book. One of my favorite things in Ducks is is where like she stops and just thinks about Meryl Streep for a while. Yeah, she really does. And and that's (laughs) yeah, like that's how that's how consciousness works. Right. And and just about uh, and in the the phrase, the fact that is what drives Mm -hmm. the whole thing. It's it's repeated. Uh, thousands of times in yeah. in the book, and you've I found myself just starting to think with that sentence structure. Yeah, about about mundane stuff that was happening in my day. Yeah, or in my life that week, or in that year, or but whatever. You know. There's there's a couple of other things going on there. And again, I haven't read the whole book, but I've read good chunks of mm-hmm. it, and there's a lot of transitions, sure. right? Where it's like almost like poetry, right? Where she's like. Listerine, Goldstein, Mamie Steen, and then you know the 
what's going on with those? Because that's a, if you add that up, that's probably like fifty percent of the book, right? It's just like her just, just saying like placement. Maybelline, yeah. Oscar Mayer, Wiener Mayer, Wiener Mayer, and like uh, then you know m- maybe this is a spoiler, but the stuff with the the lions and the lioness. Mm. And the- oh, just wait, <laughs> <laughs> just wait. You know, so you'll spoil Beowulf, but not Duck's correct. Well, that's Beowulf. the opening of the book, right? Is is the stuff about a mountain lion, about a cougar and her cubs? Yeah, and it's a recurring vignette throughout the book, and that's the more like traditional prose. And again, she has multiple children whom she names, who she talks about in depth and keeping straight, which are her kids and which are her stepkids Mm -hmm. and which are neighborhood Mm -hmm. kids come up. I feel like there's a lot of kids, right, that she cares about. Um, And I think there's something really interesting that like a woman doesn't typically write a book like this, right? Like James Joyce, Thomas Pynchon, you know, David Foster Mm -hmm. Wallace, like you know, what's the female equivalent of that? People have been asking that for a hundred years. And Lucy Elman is like one of the better, I mean, answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is a mega novel that is very hyper-specific. Yeah. Sure. There's, I, I read, I read an interview with her after I finished reading docs where, um, <laughs> in which, uh, I, Dave, do you know what I'm, she, I think yeah, so. Where, where she is she, a wild interviewer. Well, it's and, and the, the interviewer asked something to the effect of like, you know, in our, in our, uh, fast paced time, to write a novel of this length, uh, like aren't you aren't you asking a lot of your re- uh, of someone? Isn't this a big ask to ask someone to read a thousand page novel? And her response was essentially like, "I don't think you would ask a male author that." Hmm. And it's true. It's sure. true. She dunks hard on patriarchy in that interview. Yeah, I'm thinking of the same one, and, which is great. Yeah, and. And there is some fascinating stuff going on with it in like she she is not someone the narrator is it, it is it is a political novel in certain ways narrated by someone who narrated by a character who probably wouldn't think of herself as a political person. Totally. Yeah. But she a is Trump dunking yeah, in this book. She is thinking about Trump. Awesome. She is um yeah. she is Thinking about she she is thinking a lot about guns, um, and and there are lots school shootings and school shootings, um, the paranoia around that absolutely, and and so um, it is a yeah like it's it's it is a huge it I mean it is a statement novel that is coming in the form of like just the stream of consciousness of a character who probably wouldn't think of herself as a political person, even though she is an incredibly aware, uh, mm-hmm. thoughtful, um, educated, educated person. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and like, she's not like a political actor, I guess you could say, right? Like she doesn't have a, like a lot of agency in that field of that sphere of influence and, other than just voting sure you know? and and like most of us i yeah and um i know there's some uh criticism of like oh not a lot happens in it it's just her her like <laughs> daily thoughts and, and to yeah 
I mean, it really only happens over the course of like several days. Right. But, but, and, and, and we can't spoil this, Dave, but like there is, no, there is dramatic action toward the end. Yeah. There's, yeah, it follows the, you know, Aristotelian arc of a story. And, and my favorite thing, my favorite thing about it is, what page number? <laughs> Nine hundred. We're, yeah, we're not we're not telling you that. But my my favorite thing about it is how it takes its time in exploring all of the implications. Yes. Of the it True. of the 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 dramatic climactic mm-hmm. action and yeah. and it does not it does not tie there, there is closure it is not all neat closure mm-hmm. and just i was i was floored by the ending by just how yeah it 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 takes its time to really explore all that that mean all that ah, i want to say what happens but we can't um <laughs> yeah i agree i think it is i think it was my favorite reading experience that i had in 2020 um i loved every time that i sat down with this book I found myself in bed with like my phone flashlight <laughs> reading it while my spouse slept. And I would sometimes just read for like an hour, two hours like that. Um, I, I just really loved my time in that book and I, and I got it from the library and, and luckily I had, you know, three months with it because <laughs> it wasn't recalling books at that time. This was in New Zealand right at the start of the major lockdown. Um, but I would love to buy it just to have it on my shelf because every time I see it in like a photo on Instagram, I get this hit of dopamine from the spine from the cover because it just takes me back to my experience in it. Even if I never read it again, I just, I think I need to buy it just as an object to have that brings me joy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I really enjoyed reading it as well. Um, her voice to me was not annoying, but I got to say around like probably page like 250, you know, I put some index cards in there. I was trying to keep up with the names of like who is what is her husband's name, ex-husband's name, kid's name. And then like I emailed with a friend of mine who shall remain anonymous and said, he didn't like the book because it was like an annoying person he wouldn't want to be stuck on the bus next to. And really? like, so no. I, she's so lovely. And I, and I gotta say, like, I, I didn't agree with it, but yeah. like it colored my experience of reading it for a bit where I was just like, am I missing something? Like, am I, am I the bad, you know, am I the bad? Um, <laughs> Are we the baddies? <laughs> am I the baddie? And I'm like, oh shit, am I the bad reader? And, um, you know, I gotta say it is like, if you're reading for plot it is not the book for you um, in a way but there is a plot it's just a slow burn but and you really got to it hang is in super for it yeah. is i i do want to pick it up again i did enjoy it um matt we're at like one hour of recording here what is uh some other we, books on your list before we 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 should we should say it. like i i think i i don't think we should have any sort of hesitation about recommending a complicated thousand page novel on <laughs> on the podcast what? devoted to david foster wallace what? Um, so what, oh, what, was that, what was that book called that he wrote that's that matches that description uh, yeah yeah i think it was mccain's promise <laughs> McCain's promise. <laughs> right, that one. yeah um let's see uh i which is also a book that you re- reread this year 
looter for the first, first I did time, right? I, first I reread I reread Infinite Jest um for the mm-hmm. first time this was the first time I had read it front to back um cover to cover all the way through in order like since the first time I read it about 15 years ago um mm-hmm. I have a, a friend and co-worker who wanted to read it he initiated it said hey mm-hmm. I've had a copy of this for a long time I want to read it this summer like let's do it together and so we did about a hundred pages a week, FaceTimed like twice a week. Um, and just, it, that was just a joy, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I will mention, I know the truism for a lot of people is on your first read, you identify with Hal on your second, you identify with Don Gately. Um, I not true for me, it was not true. <laughs> like I, yeah. I saw Don Gately, <laughs> as much more of a of an interesting figure than i did on the first read for sure but this time out it was all about michael penulus for me like i just um and i'm i'm i am i'm i'm working on a piece of writing about this i want to sort of I, i want to sort of figure out what this is um i think my i don't want i I don't want to give away all of it while I'm still thinking about it, but like, <laughs> I think where he really resonated with me is his sense of like, to use the David Byrne line, line, like, how did I get here? You know, he is, he is at ET, he is a kid from Alston who wound up, who winds up at ETA. And, and what I kind of, want to argue what I kind of am working with here is the idea that like he exists in that book to sort of highlight the level of privilege that ETA represents and right. to, um, and to indict that a little bit to, to remind us that like, yeah, we have a little bit of a town gown dynamic that comes to us through ETA and through edit house, but that it is bigger than just that. Um, and yeah, I just, every, every time Pimulus was not on the page, I was just kind of thinking, when does, when does he come back? I want, <laughs> I want him to come back. And yeah, that's, great. that's, that's where I was. But, um, other stuff from 2020, I, I really liked, uh, Ginny Offel's weather. Um, yes, I did too. That was a great book. The, uh, the new Zadie Smith collection, uh, of essays. Oh my gosh. I have not read it yet, but I've heard great things. <sighs> it is, it is Matt Booker's holding it yeah, up to the camera right now. It's listener. It is nice. Um, I went out for a beer, like a distance beer with Tim Persson a, a couple months ago when we were allowed to do that here in BC. And, um, he talked very highly of intimations as well. There's a really wonderful, uh, the, the, the takeaway, the thing that is stuck in my mind from it is there is an essay in it where she talks about the language she uses is something to the effect of, um, privilege is relative, but suffering is absolute. Um, and, and it, it was a reminder for me of like, there are lots of ways in which 2020 is sucking for a lot of people. And there are lots of ways in which uh, I am more privileged than some. There are lots of ways that I am less privileged than some. And in the midst of all of that, but like it was a it was a, it was a good reminder of like 
as true as that is to sort of compare one's suffering in the midst of all of this is, 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 is not fruitful. And, um, it, 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 that particular essay where she was kind of playing around with those two concepts, uh, suffering and privilege and the relationship between the two, like that stuck with me. Um, I can, I can like speed round some things y'all that I, okay. Just list them off. Sure. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, I took that whole list that I sent y'all of like 50 something things I read this year. And here is. I'll mention I've got here another six that were just real highlights for me. Um, Okay, so the play Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury, which won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago and is referenced in Claudia Rankin's Just Us, side note. Hmm. Um, It is, you got to read it and you like, and it's become a kind of truism around this book. If you say anything at all about it, you spoil it. <laughs> wow. And in fact, there, like, I even saw a couple of recommendations of like, maybe you shouldn't read it. Maybe you should wait until you have the opportunity to see it in performance. Oh. Um, because it is, it is conceptual. Um, I st- like, it is still a fascinating read. I would love to see it performed. Um, okay. It would be it would be its own separate experience. Um, there is one I read a few things from New York Review Books Classics that imprint that a lot of us love. Um, the one that really uh, was big for me this year is by Elliot Shays, and it's called Black Wings Have My Has My Angel. Uh, it's just a great mid century noir that they rediscovered. And it's what got me back into reading fiction very early in the pandemic when I, I went through several weeks of just like, I do not want to read anything or take in any um, media that is challenging or tough or upsetting. Like, and, and this is what kind, I was like, this is, this is noir. So there's going to be some, some uh, darkness to it, but it's stylized darkness. I can do that. It'll be my, my entry point back in. The other thing I read early in the, the pandemic that just was an absolute joy is Elvis Costello's very long memoir uh, called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. It is, uh, it is long. It is told in non-chronological order. It is him just bouncing around his life and career uh and particularly in march and april when i was teaching solely from home and you know you know leaving the house for a grocery pickup you know (laughs) every couple of weeks and that was about all i i would curl up in bed like 10 15 pages a night with with this elvis costello memoir and it kind of got me through, uh, the, 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 those very, very uncertain early days. Um, Hmm. I did an online, uh, book club with, um, in Jackson here, uh, with the Eudora Welty house. Uh, we did a a group read of her novel losing battles, which is her, her largest novel. It's about 400 pages, almost all dialogue. And, um, that was, it, it is, it is, a a really joyful but sometimes very strange 
book that is about sort of a, a family coming back together, a, a sort of reunion. Um, but it takes some turns, uh, and it's it's lovely. Um, the first time I heard about Eudora Welty, like her name mentioned that I can remember, was at uh, Netrunner Worlds tournament, and I was talking to an opponent in like the fifth round, and we just started talking about books. And he's like, "Have you heard of Eudora Welty?" And I was like, "No, who's that?" And he just like, "Oh, dude, you got to check out Eudora Welty." So she's been on my list to read for like a very long time. And she's from Jackson. Yes. Losing Battles, I don't know that it would be, It's. I don't know that it's what I would suggest as a starting point. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I mean, she's... A something moment is what is what this person recommended. Uh, she, a still moment? Well, well uh, that... Does that familiar? She, she's much better known as a short story writer. Yeah. And so, um, you know, her, her collected stories is, is worthwhile. If you want to go to one collection, I'd say the golden apples, which is, which is a link right. story cycle. Right. Yeah. Can I just say, there's a great moment in the DT max book where David Foster Wallace jumps behind a pile of towels while he's working as a towel boy at the gym because he sees, is it Michael? Michael Connolly, who he was on a stage with receiving an award as an emerging writer on the same stage as Eudora right. Welty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And he's so embarrassed. <laughs> um, but he, he absolutely shared a stage with Eudora Welty, who right. um, was a big influence in my undergraduate years in the 1990s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she even then was sort of like, amazing that she's still yeah. alive she was one of those like mythical persons like if flannery o'connor had lived another 30 yeah. years mm-hmm. you know like what what would that have been like it was like well we got to see it with you yeah. right yeah they get compared a lot right like a lot of similar themes and carson mccullough sure. Southern well, well both sure. writing about uh about small towns um yeah. welty is more essentially comic um, and, and while O'Connor is, is super funny, like there's always the, I mean, she's always thinking theologically, there's always the, sure. like the very, the very real end times <laughs> for her. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I loved this year, um, couple of things that are just a, a year or two old here. Trust exercise by Susan Choi. Yeah. I read like, that this year. Oh man. We talked about that Just, last year. Yeah, Mike Miley last year said that was his favorite book that he read last year. It is it it it, it blew me away. It's pretty pretty great. And then Yeah, it is good. Um it. Lost Children Archive by Valeria oh, Lucelli. So good. Um yeah. I found it at times so upsetting and I am yeah, not that's horrific. and I am not a parent. <laughs> and so I yeah, can totally. I can only imagine how mm-hmm exponentially more upsetting it must be for for a parent to read yeah rachel actually she read it this year too and in her dissertations acknowledgments she block quotes a a portion from that novel as kind of like a thank you to her daughter to our daughter to flannery um and it's like a very poignant passage about what being a parent is like and yeah it's a big chunk of it though is also a road trip novel and i love you know a road trip book um Mm. i have followed you know her career for since she was first translated i love all of her work Mm. Uh, and this one national book award or was nominated for whatever but like clearly like it's not like an unknown work but if you haven't read it i think it came out last year i think people should 
go out of their way to read it because yeah. I do think it is super important. And, and really what I was saying earlier about the identifiable victim syndrome, right? Like we hear these stories of like, oh, yeah. there's kids in cages mm-hmm. and there's th- thousands of people being treated this way. It's like, go listen to one person's story mm-hmm. or 10 people's yeah. story. Yeah. And, you know, the, the companion book to it is like that other nonfiction book she wrote called Tell Me How It Ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really short book about her experience working as a translator in the New York court system for, um, you know, people who are trying to seek asylum. So Mm. I love that book as well. Uh, Luder, looking at your list, what can you tell me about Anne Lamont? You read Traveling Mercies by her. I'm I'm curious about her. I've not read anything, but I watched this show this year called Midnight Gospel. It's like a super trippy cartoon on Netflix that came out this year. And one of the episodes is just like her being interviewed okay like the audio from like a podcast but on top of this like rick and morty meets um i don't know south park meets <laughs> it's just it's super bonkers trippy 80s cartoon you know um but i found the interview really compelling so i'm curious to know more i i am not an expert on her by any means mm. i i really love bird by bird her okay. her book about writing um I love about 10% of that book. I know a lot of people revere that book. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go read Bird by Bird because so many people love it. And it's like the beginning of it, that first like shit where she lays out Bird by Bird and tells a story about it is great. And then like pretty much everything thereafter, I was just like, it's all right, man. Okay, whatever. It's Um, just okay for me, Doug. And again, she's just all right for me. She's like, she is like super religious in a way that I cannot relate to. That's what I came across her. She's pretty Jesus-y. She's also the white person with dreadlocks. I don't know Mm. if you know this about her, but like, if you want to take religious advice from the white lady with dreadlocks talking about Jesus, go for it. It's just not me, dog. Right. I'm out. But she has like she had addiction stuff, yeah. right? Like she comes from an al- alcoholism background, right? Background, right. Think. Similar um, to Mary so. Carr, I would say her take sure. on that is similar yeah. to Mary Carr. And there, gotcha. there is an essay in Traveling Mercies on how she came to the dreadlocks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And uh, I'm out. I'm out. No, I. It is. It is. Uh, it's an essay. Um, it's an essay collection. It is, you know, thoughts on on faith, on what it means mm-hmm. to um, to sort of be religious in the way that she is, which is in That's certain true. regards, in certain regards, um, you know, uh, fairly orthodox uh, Christianity theologically. In mm-hmm. certain sort of other regards. Um, that are perhaps more cultural than theological. Like they, she is, uh, a little bit, uh, a a little bit more nonconforming perhaps. Mm Um, but yeah, I, um, I, 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 I'm sure y'all have this experience too, of sometimes you as a reader sort of the, the way you pace what you read really matters. Right. And so I had just finished reading Lost Children Archive, and I just kind of said I need something that is going to be shorter pieces. An essay collection feels right right now, but I need something that is a little more um, 
that is a little more upbeat at the moment because because gotcha. yeah. <laughs> lost children archive is is brilliant it is well worth a read and oh yeah but it's also quietly devastating yeah and, yeah um and all that stuff yeah i, totally. I love the polaroids in it too you know we're talking about oh yeah and King yeah and, um yeah the images uh, that's part of the road trip book, but like book as object, it's a great, um, just total package, you know? I, and, and I totally. love sort of fiction that plays around with sort of citing its sources the way that it does. And right. sort of, yeah, you learn so much academic. from that, you know? And, yeah, and, um, playing around with sort of like blurring some lines between, you know, uh, fiction, what we would think of as, as create in finger quotes, creative writing, and then doing something that is critical or, or analytical, mm-hmm. um, kind of similar thing happens in, um, in just us to go back to the Rankin, uh, on, if you, you have the book open to just about any page and there is her writing on the right. And then she sort of cites things on the left page, including, including at times, and she uses this term, fact-checking her own writing. <laughs> and so cool. it, it does, and she did some of this in Citizen too, like uh, appropriating some quotations into her own work and, and citing them. And and she does some of that as well. And And that's just, I mean, in a world where like just about everything we read online, like has a handful of hyperlinks in it, mm-hmm. like why wouldn't we in, in, in 2020 be writing fiction or commentary in print that does some of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, uh, you know, lost children archive was a lot of thinly veiled fiction, right? Like the sound, like auto, the sound designer part of it is made up, but like her and her ex husband, who's also a writer, you know, in the book, they're both like not sound designer, sound archivists, right? Um, yeah, Alvaro yeah. Enrique was her husband and, you know, they had a pretty semi-public divorce and, you know, had written their own works and had gone away together with their, like, it was all very similar except for they were fiction yeah, writers yeah. instead of um, right. sound archivists. Um, but mm-hmm. he, his books are also quite good. I think he has a, a book about a tennis match, which if you haven't read Alvaro Enrique, he's pretty good. But. Hmm. Cool. Um, Matt. Sweet. What else, what else is on your list? What else did you read? Oh gosh. Um, tell me about Brooklyn Follies by Paul Oster. I've had that for about a decade on my shelf. Haven't got to it yet. Worth it. Um, that is the earliest thing on my list, which is to say I read it in January, 2020, which is to say I read (laughs) it in the before times. So (laughs) I, I, I am I'm going to be entirely honest with no intent of disrespect to Paul Oster whose work I love sure. and just yeah, say I am I am I am not remembering it terribly well right now. Okay. I read That's last fine. year I read uh The Book of Illusions which stuck mm-hmm. with me much much more. Um okay. and and is is kind of It's one of the horse on the cover, right? In the bathroom, the horse in the bathroom. There's a horse in the hospital. <laughs> Do 
you know that um, John Mulaney I, I know, stand up I, about Trump? Yes, I, 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 I do. And <laughs> Which, by the way, let me say congratulations to you guys living in the U.S. that you're getting a new president next month. That's fucking a. wonderfully fantastic news. Uh, we haven't got to mention it on the show yet because we haven't had a show in f- three or four months, but... That's a that's a big um, geopolitical event that we, Indeed. that we just got to experience recently. <laughs> I mean, most of the tenure of this podcast has happened in the Trump administration, Matt, which is disconcerting, disconcerting and a weird backdrop. But like, yay, we don't have to have that anymore. We don't have to make <laughs> awkward Johnny Gentle references anymore. Yeah. That joke only goes so far, right? It really does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm curious about your reading of Paul Beatty's book. Oh man, it is well. The White Boy Shuffle. I've not read it, but I really love the sellout. If you love, if you like the sellout, you'll you'll like the White Boy Shuffle. It is, um, it is. I I would say the the sellout is better. Uh, the sellout is. Um, I I laughed out loud so much reading the sellout, and then had the immediate reaction yeah. of like you of right, oh boy, right. am I allowed to laugh? Should at this? I have just laughed at that? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. The white boy shuffle has some similar things going on. It is. Um, it's. It's it's fun. If you if you like the sellout, cool. I would recommend it. It's I. Uh, you can see him still sort of figuring out some of the moves that he will he will sort of perfect with the sellout. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, how about you, Matt Booker? What's your kind of like shotgun top five, top ten um, this year? I want to mention a couple of other books we haven't touched on yet that are probably unique to my list, and I'll go through them right quickly. Um, one is one of my my favorite books of the year. Maybe I've put as my number one. It's called Red Pill by Hari Kunzru. Oh yeah, and you've talked uh, about this. This book in the back channels. Yeah, it's fantastic, and it's about a uh, a writer who gets a fellowship to a prestigious institute in Germany and Berlin, and he goes there and just basically can't write, fucks around, and he wanders around Berlin. And he comes across this grave of the romantic writer Heinrich von Kleist. And he gets sort of obsessed with von Kleist, who killed himself. Um, And he binge watches this fictional police procedural show called Blue Lives, which is like cops on steroids, like even worse than cops. And he just gets totally obsessed with it and ends up kind of meeting the creator of it but then you're not sure if he's actually like interacting with the creator or if it's just in his mind and sort of unreliable narrator from then the rest of the book Hmm. Um, and it's a really compelling book it's one of those ones you pick it up and you're just like you're in it you're just sold Um, so red pill is up there for me I was lucky this year and like three or four of my favorite writers living published new books this year Um, one of whom is Sarah Gerard, who I've mentioned on the show before, and she has a new novel out this year called true love. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend this book, um, which is kind of a, you know, thinly veiled biography, right. Of a person who, um, moves to New York city, lives amongst a bunch of like poor, starving artists, gets kind of caught up in her own love life. 
and um, so it's the plot of girls the tv show sounds like it but it's not right it sounds like it could be but it's not um but it's it's Which uh, is a show that i like you know especially if like me you lived in new york city in your early 20s uh there's a lot uh, of appeal there but she's one of those writers who i would say i'll follow her anywhere whatever she does i want to read it and i would add to that list of uh nicholson baker so oh you love him he's who i got into like literature from right like mm-hmm. i discovered john updike and vladimir Dabokov from reading nicholson baker gotcha. in high school and i would not have been an english major he's your rushmore he is he is <laughs> um and he has a new book out this year called baseless um not his best book honestly but it is about his attempts to search through the freedom of information act requests to find out if and when the united states used chemical weapons or biological weapons in the korean war and he he has a lot of evidence that the u.s did stuff like put pathogens into their rice crops um, release mosquitoes all kinds of weird shit that they did but of course like the cia the fbi has all like blacked out these requests and it's he's been doing this since like 2008 of trying to get these requests and he's like you know what i might die before i could ever finish this book so i'm just gonna sit down every day for like a year and write about everything that i know about this project from Mm -hmm. the korean war um so it's not a perfect book because he doesn't have all the proof, right? He doesn't have all the evidence. Um, right. But he's another one of those guys. If he writes something, I'm going to buy it and read it. And um, another one like that is one of my favorite writers who's also a cartoonist, um, Adrian Tomina. And his new book mm. is called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist. The book itself looks like a moleskin. Like it's got the little elastic band on it. Like a field notes, yeah. No, You're no. Kind of a fan. Oh, <laughs> like a moleskin. Different, different, um, different notebook. Sorry, got, yeah, but it apologies. is published on black and white on graph paper. He clearly drew it on graph paper, and uh, it is uh, a sort of memoir, and that it's all about the times in his life where he has been uh, embarrassed or um, someone has messed up in front of him and he has been embarrassed on their behalf but it's usually like whenever he's been insulted he's cataloged all about how lonely that is and like (laughs) it is phenomenal and like if you like his artwork if you like his sensibility of being uh sort of an outcast but also uh you know he's he's a well-regarded guy he's on the cover of the new yorker this week all, all the time he writes for the new you know he, he draws for the new yorker um and yet he feels like the rodney dangerfield like there's no respect right <laughs> um and this is this is his attempt at cataloging all of that so between him nicholson you know nicholson baker sarah gerard new books the other one that i got to mention new book this year is uh stephen moore who is sort of one of my, you know, heroes in life and an ideal critic, I believe, um, published this book with Zero Gram Press called Alexander Theroux. And it's sort of a correction, right. collection of his writings about Alexander Theroux. Um, 
And a lot of it has been published before, but it's never been collected in this way. And I sort of feel like, um, you know, what I like about Stephen Moore is that he tries to bring attention to books that should have more yeah, readers. Yeah. Darkenville's mm-hmm. Cat is that way. Um, you right. know, a lot of Theroux's books, Three Wogs, Laura Warholic, they should all have more attention. Um, but I really am thankful to Stephen Moore for putting out that book. Um, and it's, you know, if you haven't picked it up, if you have any interest in Darkenville's Cat, or Alexander Theroux in general, I highly recommend picking up um, Stephen Moore's, as far as I know, the only book-length study of Theroux's work. Um, The last one in my top five, and I should pause to say The Silence and Lost Children Archive probably in my top five reads of the year. Um, And I'm not going to mention those because we already discussed them. I'm not going to mention Enter the Aardvark, which you discussed in depth last episode last episode uh or g- and obviously we're huge fans of ghost that, engine so read that uh, if you christian tabordo yeah. uh, you know mentioned that um but the last one i want to mention is an australian novel called clade which is by a writer named james bradley and uh this book is uh, uh somewhat about climate change although it's told through various connected stories and set pieces um and it was first published in Australia in 2015. And the word clade means um, it's like a taxonomy word in biology where it refers to a group of uh, animals that have a common ancestor. And there's one section in particular in this book. There's tons of great sections, one about a beekeeper, one set in Antarctica, but there's one section called Journal of the Plague Year, which is about a like avian virus that's first found in China and it spreads all over the world. And these people in Australia are just hearing about it and they sort of go into lockdown and then they go into hiding and they're afraid it's going to come there. And like you watch the world fall apart. And I found this just fascinating because it goes to show you that like fiction writers have been thinking of this scenario that we are living in right now for a long time. And it like what would have been totally fictional in 2015 is like not only plausible now, but like we're living in it. And one of the main differences is in the fiction, it quickly devolves into like, just cities being on fire and people killing each other, which is a little more, the reality is a lot more boring than that. Right. It's like, just wear a mask and get takeout. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like skip Christmas rather than like your alcohol intake is going to go up a bit for some people. But, but in the book, it's like, you know, uh, uh, just devolve straight into like murder. Right. And it's like just the road by Cormac McCarthy. It was like Mad Max. Right. It's like, it's a bit of a jump to go from like everyone being on lockdown, but it gets right up to that point that we're at now. Right. Where there's like millions of global deaths and, uh, you know, it's just fascinating to read from like five years ago of how, what someone would have made of this yeah, fiction. The the new Lethem has a couple of kind of funny riffs on Cormac McCarthy's The Road because <laughs> where where, where uh, there is some playing around with like a couple of characters cracking wise about like ah well that's that's not exactly how this is playing out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm really curious to read this book now. 
sounds in my wheelhouse for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to mention one more book before we uh, take a break here, Dave, which is that I picked up this book, Ant Kind by Charlie Kaufman. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. our buddy uh, Alex Moran and I talked about it a little bit. And I started reading it, and I got to say, I did not finish it. Uh, I found the premise of it like very. By choice. Well, yes, but I found the premise of it yeah. very interesting, and I got into it about uh, almost to page 300, and then I felt like there's no way this guy's going to be able to like sustain this. Like he's building this huge, like architecturally interesting building, but it's going to like collapse, <laughs> or it's going to be like. Uh, just a failure and i i still want to finish the book but it's um Mm. it's again a very unique narrator a very unique voice and uh i think he's a great filmmaker i don't know if he's a great Uh novelist but he's got a (laughs) he's got a huge book here to to chew on if you want to pick up a 700 page novel um, right. yeah, our friend Kaufman. Ben Diamond mentioned this in his re- year in review that he sent us, and he was not thrilled by this novel. He found it really quite unpleasant. Well, so. I would give anyone, you know, permission that if you get into a book and you don't like it, just quit. That's what I do. Yeah. 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 Life's too short. Life's too short. Read the good stuff. Anything else, Booker? Well, I probably do have more books to talk about. I don't want to go too far, but. Um, one more that I'll mention that I really did enjoy, and it's kind of unique for me, is uh, a nonfiction book called Tracks, and it is uh, by a woman named Robin Davidson. It was published a long time ago, but it is a true memoir of a woman who rode solo 1,700 miles across the Australian outback on camels. And wow. be- before she even does this, she moves up to Alice Springs, kind of in the middle of Australia, and she doesn't know anything about camels, right? She's got to learn about how to take care of camels and how temperamental they are and what weird animals they are. And mm. um, I don't know. I, I would say if you liked the book Wild by Cheryl Strayed, it's somewhat similar to that, where it's like one woman mm. on a journey, out on her own. Um, so like Eat, Pray, Love as well. I, I never heard of that book, so I, I can't speak to that. I never heard of it. But, um, I just I, I would really recommend Tracks by Robin Davidson. <laughs> um, it's a, a very unique experience of someone. I'm always attracted to the story of a journey, solo person, on their own, true life story, uh, against all odds, and mm-hmm. uh, you know how did they do it? So check out that book uh i i think that's cool. all i have I, I last year you know i mentioned a book by a writer called jr helton who i think still think jr helton doesn't get enough recognition even though he's got a big name publisher and he's he's successful now uh his books are well known compared to how they were before i went back and read one of his earlier books this year called the jugheads and it's really about like how fucked up his parents were and it's fantastic especially if you love uh stories of like kids growing up in rural texas like i do um (laughs) and how you know tough life could have been and especially with a problematic father and he's just very much almost like a beat right like he's just very much in the moment living his life 
and writing about it. So I, I would say check out the Jugheads, J.R. Helton. Not many people have read that book except for uh, R. Crumb. And Crumb you know, is a huge fan of J.R. Helton and has illustrated most of his um, books. Huh. So the cover is by R. Crumb. And Terry Zweigoff, all those guys love uh, Helton's work. And um, they kind of overlap. I love like someone who creates their own world. And like yeah. every time you pick up one of his books, it's just like you're in one part of his universe and there's some overlap with the other ones. And uh, they're, they're fantastic. So any of his books, J.R. Yeah. Helton, pick them up. Jughead's sort of foundational because it's about his childhood. But um huh. I think that's all I got on books, man. I'm, um, it's cool. 3 a.m. here in Austin. <laughs> uh, I've been recording now for 13 hours. And, uh, I'm ready to, I haven't even talked about my I'm list. I'm ready to yeah. get some yeah. hummus and some uh, <laughs> dinner. No, Dave, uh, give us your top 12. Okay. Well, I, I think I have my most prolific reading year in like the last five years this year, at least for like pleasure. And I think I... I shamefully got only to like 29 books done which compared to you Luter, who said this was a lame year for reading for you you almost doubled that uh miley said 80 last year i think he was at like 90 something this year like you guys are freaks um but chronologically from what i read start to finish uh my favorite books were the secret history by donna tart um house of leaves by mark danieliski which i've had on my shelf for a decade and just have always been like oh, I'll read that soon I'll read that soon and I always pushed it and then a friend in New Zealand this year had two copies at his house and I was like can I borrow one of those and then I just hammered it out in like a week or two and it was it's like a top 10 it's book phenomenal, of it's all phenomenal. Time. Did, I just loved it it's so great did we talk about Dave how um I was sort of <laughs> well before I ever read it. I had multiple friends who said to me that book gave me nightmares, and so yeah, I've heard people talk about the horror aspects and, of it as being like really, like really sticking. With and them. so I had mentioned this to um, a student I had uh, seven eight years ago who really loved that book, and. Um, and to sort of call my hand on it, like she gave me a copy of it um, and and like inscribed it to me, like, hope it doesn't give you nightmares. And um, <laughs> and and yeah, I, I read it. I did not have nightmares. Did you have nightmares? I don't think so. No, but it is. I just really love it. It's pretty intense yeah. in, a, in a wonderful way. Yeah, it's a nail biter for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the premise, the premise. One is... weird thing about it is that there is a character in it named Karen Green, who is an artist. That's right. Yeah, um, that did strike me. Uh, She's the wife character in that. Is that right? It's weird, right? Hmm. Yeah. Because that book came out in what, like early 2000? Like 2000 or two thousand? Yeah. yeah. Uh, before Wallace, I think, even met Karen Green. Probably. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like really intimidated by House of Leaves for a long time. <laughs> just based on this, this the width of the spine like i thought it was going to be like okay this is another mega novel i have to set aside like a month or two for this but actually it's like a pretty fast right. read the the page layout stuff goes quite quickly in some sections and it's it's deceiving for how long you think it's going to take for how long it actually does yeah. so if you're scared of this book house of leaves based on that don't be it's just like a regular size novel 
I would this say. is how I've and it's and it's nuts. This is how I've been trying to foist uh, the mystery dot doc on people. Oh yeah, that's let's talk good, about that because I'm I'm on I page think. like 600 and I've been reading the book for like two hours, right? Oh, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, so it's good. very comparable actually. So, yeah. so the mystery dot doc, uh, I can't really speak to it because I haven't finished it, but I'm on <laughs> page like 600 something of right. this book. I think I talked about it last year in our year interview. Don't year don't before, recall. Cause... Don't recall. Let's edit that one out. Let's. Sure. Can we retcon that into a book? <laughs> I'll go back to that episode. I'll re-edit it. I'll republish. That's it called retconning it. Yeah, yeah. Retcon. Um, <laughs> I think that that book was compared to like walking through an art exhibit, and it's like mm-hmm. you go through this massive museum. You can go over there. You can go over there, and you sort of wander around yeah. just through various rooms. Sometimes you're looking at a film. Sometimes you're reading mm-hmm. a voice. Sometimes you overhear something. Um, at There's... least through page 600 or so, it doesn't make a ton of cohesive sense. It's just like mm-hmm. an experiential thing. Yeah. To, it's kind to of Ducks Newburyport-ish in a way, I guess, like that. Mm. A lot of found archival stuff, uh, memory loss stuff. Um I woke up. I don't know who I am. I think Ducks Newberry Port is much more dense, right? There's a lot more density to it. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. Um, way, yeah, definitely. It's and, way, and, way more of a slog. But, well, like but you said, can you... also fall into a groove with it. You can fall into yes. a groove with Ducks to where you don't even notice the fact that. It, totally. It's yeah. true, but that it still takes more pages. time than like... Sure. Yes. Yeah. Getting through 50 it's pages page of flipper, it. the way Mystery Dot Doc is. No, you can be on page 100 in like an hour, and it's great. Uh, yeah, because I love a good yeah. book where it's like, I just picked it up and I'm page hundred. <laughs> um, yeah, that feels nice. Yeah. But but also yeah. it is a little disconcerting for some people who I think don't know what the fuck is going on, and they want to have some idea of where this thing is going by page hundred. Um, and like I said, you don't have that sense by page five hundred. Um, <laughs> but so we can say if you're if you're just typically generally not into the concept of mystery in general like maybe this isn't the book for you but i know if you're okay to sit with mystery for a while you, and pe- and puzzle through something yeah. matt you've kind of gone back and, and taken out. more of an interest in this book though is there anything else you want to say about what what intrigues you to go back to this book mystery um, doc no just Brendan McIntosh is that the writer's name? Matthew McIntosh, right? Yeah, Matthew McIntosh. So. Um, I do think there's there's a couple of sort of big ideas that are sort of uh, recurrent through it. There's a lot in that book about loss, and there's a lot in that yeah. book about grief. And yeah. um, like most books that we tend to read, hey guys, and like, <laughs> sad bastard shit. Well. <laughs> fair amount about like <laughs> angels and life after death and yeah. um hmm. and death in general i'm saying i don't know that i have a thought here that's <laughs> okay. fine we're gonna yeah. edit this part out much of all okay. of the mystery dot doc is gonna get cut because i haven't even finished this thing <laughs> okay. um let's go matt do you have anything okay. to add about um best movies of the year films tv shows music um other media that you consumed this year that you think is cool or interesting. I have, I have been reading much more than I have been uh, spending time with um, movies or other media. Um, I can, a couple of things come to mind. Um, the uh, film version by Spike Lee of American Utopia, the David Byrne 
Broadway show mm, is is phenomenal. It is a very optimistic show, and um, it I found really in a few moments like moving in ways that snuck up on me, and a little bit mm. of that, but not all of it. I think is like just watching a full theater that and watching a show that watching a show that ends with dancing in the aisles. And Mm. like, that's, (laughs) that is, that is, you know, I, I, I I would, I hope in a year from now or less to be dancing in the aisles somewhere. Right. Don't we all, um, like, um, as far as as far as music, um, I've not I've not bought as much music or, or done as much listening. Um, there is a new record out by uh, by one of my longtime favorite bands, the Old Ninety Sevens. Uh, great new disc by them called Twelfth. It's their twelfth album, and um, great, great. I see what they did there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just wonderful alternative country band out of Texas um, that just is beloved great songwriting um and uh dave we've talked a little bit about about jeff rosenstock i've really liked the new mm-hmm. jeff rosenstock called no dream um yeah i've been seeing that on the the year-end rounds yeah uh just he has not grabbed me in the same way that many of my friends um seem to enjoy enjoy him but i'm still open to yeah more of a just great great punk record um it is definitely uh, is doing some some political thinking, and there is some uh, there is some 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 uh, righteous anger to it, as one would Good. hope for yeah. in a punk record in tw- in twenty twenty. <laughs> yes, pre election. Yeah, cool. Um, I'll just mention a few other books on my list. If that's yeah, cool. go back to the books, Dave. What, what else did you like that you read? I I read the Topeka School this year, yeah. by ben Lerner, which we talked about last year. I liked that. I read Freshwater by Akwaeke Ameze, who's a Nigerian American writer, and I I will strongly recommend this book. It is quite bonkers. The premise is that uh, it's kind of autobiographical based on their life. Um, the premise is that they are kind of um, tormented by two spirits or deities. Who kind of like vie for their body and soul throughout the novel but then there's also the character also has allegiances to like they have something of a christian upbringing in certain aspects of their life and so jesus makes appearances in like this kind of otherworldly psyche um soul warfare thing that's going on it is a wild read and i really i really thoroughly enjoyed it um amaze has a new novel that just came out this year uh which we have but uh we haven't got a chance to read it yet but i'm pretty keen for it um stoner by john williams is a book i read this yeah. year which I've had on my shelf for a very All long time, time. i, I kind of just i kind of just went back to my shelf this year and i just read a lot of books that i've been meaning to read for a long time that's one of them um i would say one of my top three favorites this year was let the great world spin by Colum mccann He's Irish great. American writer. I like it too. Um, my um, kind of mentor, the 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 professor who got me into White Noise, which was like my Rushmore <laughs> uh, moment. Um, he recommended it to me through email this year, and I checked it out and totally like Delillo vibes. The opening scene, Philip Pettit, the great Pettit, Philip Pettit. 
oh yeah uh the the tightrope walk between the twin towers in the 1970s very like big opening new york set piece reminded me of delilo a lot i loved it and if you haven't seen Anything the documentary, there, well, if you haven't seen the documentary of him, Men on Wire, yeah, Men on Wire, great, which is film. yeah, you know, absolute hero of mine, just absolute fearless yeah. human being, mm-hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> and you know to do something that dangerous, that insane for purely like aesthetic reasons, um, yeah. it's almost unparalleled. So I see the appeal of that yeah. to Colin McCann. Um, Delillo, yeah. I, for sure. I see the appeal of mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was really that's a great. And I I gotta say, Colin McCann has written a bunch of other books that are also really phenomenal. So if you haven't read his other books, mm. read read more yet. of them. It, especially you know because I miss New York when I, we were talking about the Zadie yeah, Smith book. A lot of it is like what it's like to be in New York during the pandemic, yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Going back to April when things were really bad in New York, um, you know, imagining just what it was like to be there and just imagining like, you know, not being able to take the subway and like not going into work. Like it's hard for me to 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 think what that must be like for them. Um, Sure. But reading that book uh, is it's phenomenal, man. It's a great New York book. Mm. Let the great world spin. Totally. Another New York book that I read this year was Otessa Moss Phase, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. It was just all right for me, Doc. It was just all right for me. Well, it did include, I mentioned it mainly because it includes a Wallace reference and a DeLillo reference, Mao too. And then she makes fun of like Brooklyn hipsters who all read David Foster Wallace. Her description of that was like, absolutely me. Uh, Except for for like 2006 or something. Except for I don't live in Brooklyn anymore. But um, yeah. It was yeah. absolutely devastating and uh, in a way that was like made me think of her as an enemy, like straight up. Like, <laughs> I, she hates this woman. Hates yeah. Me. And like I, I yeah. knew people like her too, in um, in New York, you know, who are just like you read David Foster Wallace. Fuck you. Fuck you. Get away from me. And it was like, yeah. that's all you had to say to just be like. That right, sentiment's fine. alive and well in 2020. I oh, think. for sure. Um, I mean, we're doing our best to hopefully um, counteract that. You know, like hopefully there are some thoughtful, sensible people who I, like Wallace and some other uh, pantheon of other great writers. Sure. I gotta say, I don't even mind it in, in, in retrospect because uh, sure, yeah. uh, it means you stand for something, right? It's like if you hate me that much, <laughs> just based on that, I was like, that's that's strong because a lot of other people I meet in my life are just like. I never heard of any of these books. Who? Any yeah, of these books exactly. you all talk about yeah. is like, you know, You're like you you know who Wallace well, is. Well, it's cool. it's just shocking to, to me of how many <laughs> grown ass adults like don't read one book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. Or you know, read uh, on their phone or on their Kindle for a few minutes and be like, they read something this year. Um, mm-hmm. So the people who are actually reading is like, even though you hate my sensibility, yeah. we're we're on the same team. Right? Yeah, we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> I have found yeah. myself thinking about my uh, year of rest and relaxation a good bit this year, just because mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, it's in the title. Well, and and haven't we like all had <laughs> our moments this year of just like I would like to, you know, um, just sort of, just sort of like uh, sleep for. 
16 hours a day every day well and and maybe maybe i can can go to sleep and wake up like next year and and things will be things will be different and better yeah. like there's a little element of wish fulfillment perhaps there mm-hmm. there's, like, a, yeah. there's a great line yeah, of uh david sedaris has an essay where he talks about unemployment and he's like mm-hmm. my recommendation if you ever find yourself unemployed is massive massive amounts of sleep <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's like yeah it's sad but true it's like the more that you can just um let's just try to forget this ever happened like just get through mm-hmm. this as much as possible and like the poor people who are just hunkering down are the ones sort of suffering the most right like the people who are out living their life as nothing has changed making it worse mm-hmm. for the people like there's such a weird yeah. dichotomy going on you know of like Yes. Those people who have given up so much and are suffering and being alone and um, trying to just mentally battle every day are in direct opposition to the people who don't give it a second fucking thought. You know, Mm -hmm. like I'm going to go to Taco Bell every day or I'm going to go and sit down at the Outback Steakhouse every Friday. And I don't know. We just never lived through something like this, man, Uh where it's like where that's. That you know, in the book, uh, my year of rest and relaxation is really like it's mm-hmm. just her, right? It's yeah. just her problem. It's not yeah, like totally. a global pandemic where we're all trying yeah. to stay in indoors indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, mm-hmm. um, kind of a, a funny segue, uh, title-wise. I enjoyed the book "How to Behave in a Crowd" by Camille Bordas this year. Um, it's a novel, she's right? The it's novel. a novel. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking to crowds and, and avoiding them. Um, she's married to Adam Levin, uh, power couple of, of the literary world. I thoroughly enjoyed her book. I uh, read Hey Nostradamus by Douglas Copeland. He's a writer from Vancouver, BC. He's probably my favorite Canadian writer, I would say. Um, that's a book that's been on my shelf for 10 years. Really liked <laughs> it. And just today I finished another book that's been on my shelf for a decade, The Names by Don DeLillo, which I would say was like fine definitely not one of my more favorite DeLillo books but there are sections in Jerusalem there are sections in Istanbul there are sections in Victoria British Columbia where I currently live uh there are sections in the Wadi Rum Desert in Jordan which I've also visited so I found a lot of like places that I've spent time in or lived in were like kind of not necessarily the epicenter of this book because Athens, Greece is where most of the action happens. But I just kept finding myself like getting those dopamine hits of like, I know what that is. I I've been there. I can totally picture this. So that was a fun experience. Um, so that was my list in books. How, how would you rate it? I mean, to me, when I look at um, the DeLillo books that I have read, I haven't read everything but yeah me neither uh the names was like it's an early 80s novel yes yeah right not lunarized birth year and so like when i think of his 80s books like white noise libra those are absolute masterpieces to me yes i agree um mal too you mentioned is definitely a masterpiece Mm -hmm. underworld early 90s yeah 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 underworld is probably his number one like most ambitious book i think it's fair Um, to say but then those earlier books you know we talked on the the podcast before about end zone 
as uh, an infinite jest precursor, right? It definitely right. influenced <laughs> yeah. Wallace. Um, you know, interesting thing that I thought about when I was I was uh, looking at some like okay, what influenced David Foster Wallace? Endzone is one of them. What influenced mm-hmm. Don DeLillo? And he says what a lot of what influenced him, you know, was like jazz and movies. Yeah. And, um, but a good, you know, not a good friend, a friend of mine who lives here in Austin, who's a writer named Austin Cleon. If you haven't read his books, I recommend them. He says, we think about influence the wrong way. Because if you say... David Foster Wallace was influenced by Don DeLillo. It almost implies like Don DeLillo is doing something to David Foster Wallace, but really the influence of Don DeLillo on David Foster Wallace is a conscious choice by David Foster Wallace to say, Mm -hmm. I am going to take your work and kind of fucking steal from it. Like, and kind of like repurpose it. Right. Yeah. And like this idea that we think about influence is like, you know, older person like you're going back through generations like i just said like wallace was influenced by delillo delillo was influenced by harlem jazz it's like that all of that forget that that is artists who are creatively stealing from other artists like in a good way so that's like how, how how books are made the uh the michael shabon line that all fiction is fan fiction (laughs) <laughs> or, or Cormac McCarthy says all books are made out of books, right? Yeah. Like you're taking other books. Um, We're on a uh, cumulative journey uh, as humanity together, right? Like, it's hard to write something entirely original. You're always building on what well, came before. And this is a thing that I, I t- to mention Lethem again, that I've always loved about him, is like wearing those sort of things on his sleeve in a really celebratory way. Um, I, I, I dig that so much more than like the, um, like the, the, the Oedipal anxiety of influence kind of thought of like, like, uh, I mean, (laughs) I just, I don't, I don't, I don't have time for that for the, for the idea of like someone who influences me is someone that I, I must somehow best. Mm hmm. I, I don't care for right. that. But Could but I think going back to DeLillo, you know, this is an interesting question. Like, okay, let's say you've read Underworld, Mautu, Libra, uh, White Noise. You know, what is like, to me, what is tier two of DeLillo? And when you look at, I know Matt would probably put Great Jones Street up I there. I would. That's exactly um, what I'd do. Not tier right, one? You know. Um, might be tier one for him, but I'm just saying. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for I, the rest of us, is tier two. I would I would put point omega as a strong tier two. Um, okay? I would take that. I would take that. And um, it has been a long time since I've revisited Americana, but there's a whole lot to like in it. I've not read that one. There's a whole yeah, lot. It's his to first like book. Yeah. Yeah. In zone is strong tier two. Um, this is, oh, th- this could be controversial. I might put players tier two. Oh, I, I haven't read that one. That's either. another one of the early eighties ones. That's yeah. a little under discussed. Is it, is it, it may be late seventies. It's, it's a little under, maybe. it's a little under discussed. Um, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And Ratner star is the one with the math genius, right? Yeah. Is that the, 
I like and, Ratner's Star a lot. Uh, maybe I, better than. I have read players. it, and I will not claim to. I mean, I mean, I know there's argument about like, do you have to understand the math stuff? And I, I, Ratner Star kind of lost me in some spots. Mm, okay. Yeah, I still like it. I don't know that I understood every word of it, but I think that it's again him on this ambitious path. Yeah, um, that that leads towards you know white noise and underworld in the nineties. Mm. It's uh, Ratner Stars. I remember it was published the year I was born, right? So I, I have mm-hmm. a fondness for it. Fifty four, was it? Um, Nineteen thirty one. Oh. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but I will say, I you know after I remember I was uh, I graduated college and the first one of the first Delillo books that I bought after that was The Body Artist, and I was like, wow, this is a piece mm. of shit. Yeah, that was not a strong and, read for uh, me. Yeah. And then and then I read I remember Cosmopolis came out and it was like he did this New York reading and I was I like I like it more than most people do. I not like a fan, it. bro. I like not it. Not a fan. Yeah. Not a fan of moments, but overall I've, I've I've got I've got a hot take. Moments. I've got a hot take on it. I think it is um I think time has been kind to it. I think it was not the book that people wanted from Delillo in that moment. Because uh-huh. I, there was a moment there. It, it was his first novel that was published after 9-11. And there was a moment of, huh. if there is an American novelist who can explain 9-11 to us, right. it might be Don DeLillo. He has written about terrorism. He has written about New York. Yeah. He has set a book partially at the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And his first... When was Falling Man? Was it a year or two? Oh, 2007. 2007. It was later, That's yeah. That's a long gap. Huh? And so... Um, and so, like, it got some very bemused reviews because I, my, I just think it was not – people did not want a book about cyber capital from DeLillo yeah. in 2003. And then what happened yeah. about five years after that? And right. so, so it, <laughs> yeah, it sure. like, if you have not reread – if you have not revisited Cosmopolis recently, like, I think it has aged way better than a lot of people uh, expected it to. I I like it a lot. I'm also going to throw out there, if you can get your hands on a copy of Amazon's. I haven't read it. uh, It is is a blast. Um, It is... This is the the pseudonym book, right? What's the name again? Amazon's. Um, no, I know, but what's the writer's? The, oh, Cleo Birdwell. Birdwell, right? Yes. Cleo Birdwell. Yeah, thank you. Um, it is a blast. <laughs> it is the uh, it is it, Marie Marie J. Siskind, isn't it? Oh yeah. Okay. I have and to that. Um, he's one of the greats. Like it is. Uh, copies of it are very expensive. I checked it out from the library when I was in grad school, and mm-hmm. it is uh, it is a blast. It has, I mean, it's. It, it has jokes like it is um, uh, it's it, there's a silliness to it, maybe, but like, that's fine. DeLillo can be silly. <laughs> sure. He's allowed. Well, on that 30 minute uh, rabbit trail down DeLillo, <laughs> DeLillo's uh, <laughs> um, archive, I guess that's probably a good, good way to wrap up our year in books at the two hour and 15 minute mark (laughs) probably the longest episode we've ever recorded i think so as we said this will be part one of our year in review the other 
televisual pop cultural stuff will come in part two. Um, Matt Luter, thank you so much for your generous time tonight, running us through your awesome list of reads. Uh, thanks for sharing yours, Booker, as well. It's good to talk to you, Matt. Oh my gosh. It's just good to hang out. Absolutely. Real, Gentlemen, real nice. always, always good <laughs> to spend time with y'all. Yeah. We've done this a few times during the pandemic, but uh, not with quite the same literary rigor that we've spent <laughs> these two hours, I would say. Well, I, I also think we invited you on here because you have read so much and our sensibilities align a lot. And uh, yet I think of your top books, I've read none of them. So I think I have a lot left to learn from. And um, I just want to say, and, say uh, and And I could say pretty much the same to you. Yeah. Like I, um, I got some good things to, uh, to check out myself now. Yeah, me too. My year in reading typically is just what Matt like, <laughs> recommended the year before, and then I just try and read a lot of those books with a few other ones thrown in. But <laughs> well, uh, awesome! I, Thanks I so learned much, a Matt lot from, from everyone who who writes in as well. So, yeah, uh, I would say if you listen to this and enjoyed it, email us some recommendations too. Totally. And, and we have had quite a few people writing in the last six months saying that they are excited for this episode specifically every year and they're super keen for it this year. So I think we're giving a pretty robust version of our, of our book <laughs> chat this year. So I think it's fine. I think people have two hours to spare these days. Hey, do you know the, the podcast uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History? Um, uh, yeah, I do know of it. I mean, that guy is super rigorous, much, so. but he puts out like... It's like, like four hours, every four episode. hour episodes. Yeah. Wow. And he's just like reading off a script too, right? Like it's not conversational. It's kind of conversational, but okay. it's just okay. him. Hopefully we had enough gags here to, <laughs> to keep you interested. Listening. It's a good word. Gag is a good word. I mean, <laughs> in that context. Yeah, <laughs> well, barf humor aside, uh, which I love. Thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned for part two coming very soon. Thanks again, Matt Luter. Thank you all. This was a blast. Catch me now as I say. Into darkness. I thought to be extinct. Hey, welcome everybody. It's episode 58. Of the Great Concavity. <laughs> what episode is this, Matt? I have no idea. It's 57 Let, or 58. Let's do it again, because I feel like my hat yeah, hit, the, hit the microphone. <laughs> yes. Let's do it again. <laughs>